This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Mentors, your bi-weekly look at the world of Jews and sports. Gabe, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I, I hear you've got a, a muzzle. First of all, Shana Tova to all of our listeners out there in 5783. Ah, uh, no, I just, I just wrote 5782 on a check. <laughs> I'm never going to stop making the joke. Never going to yeah. stop making it. Well, welcome everybody. Well, I, I, you know, I came by it honestly. As you said, I have a muzzle. Uh, a new little mensch was born into the family. Uh, my wife gave birth last week. Um, we have a new baby. He's uh, currently six days old. So, and, yeah, and how are you feeling? Have you slept at all? Yeah, I like it's going pretty well. I would say um, we're both like sort of kind of off work right now, or my wife's off work. I'm sort of kind of off work at the moment. Um, so things have been okay. My uh, multiple members off your of off your day job. If, this is this is work. Your day job. Yeah, exactly. My day job. Uh, my my older child did get COVID, so that's been sort of a monkey wrench thrown into things. Everyone's fine, but. Uh, complicated things a little bit so anything anyways everything is good uh wife's happy and healthy and so is the baby so everything's good in that regard um a, a and yeah not to all our listeners um you know a little preoccupied with the baby to be be uh celebrating the the hug but you know still nice happy new year to everybody um, i think i'm about any... i'm about 30 percent apple right now are you yeah that's how you many know my take so you saw, I am sure you, well, I don't know if it, it's funny. So people who follow us on Twitter know that um, we sometimes tweet things, but I would say it, we both occasionally tweet things. It's not like we sign them or anything like that. So I feel like sometimes we tweet things that the other one probably doesn't read that we tweet. Cause like you don't read your own tweets, right? Like, yeah, I, f- I find I, out what I read it if I send based it. on the mentions, the mentions. Yes, exactly. So you saw the mentions from my tweet did, did decent numbers about how apple fritter should be a more popular Rosh Hashanah treat tweet. A, it should a be. more a more popular Rosh Hashanah treat. Let me get so that. So I that. made uh, I made an apple cake that was just sure. basically a giant apple fritter with yeah. brown sugar and and well, sort of, it wasn't quite donut. But the apple but fritter it was is cakey. like no, the apple fritter is like a special thing because like there's something sort of there's a special kind of alchemy that happens when you like coat the apple with dough Does or it batter have to be fried? and deep fry it. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying like you remember the old um, McDonald's apple pies that were fried. Yes. Like the new ones those, just don't, they don't the quite come close to it. There's some of those. Yeah. It, it breaks down the apple in a certain way. I truly believe that. So yeah. um, maybe we can get those Mennonites out and say Jacob's on board and, and, you know, get some, some cross, uh, cross religious apple fritter making going for Rosh Hashanah uh, 5784. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. We can, we can make this happen. I usually make sufganyot every year. Maybe I can start making apple fritters. As for you and, and your young family as part of this, um, yeah. As as a, you know, a a Jewish baking guy, but it's yeah. it's big news, big, big you know big news for the Jews both both this week with Rosh Hashanah and the emergence of the Miami Boys Choir all over the internet. 
Uh, they, yeah, I feel like there needs, so one of the guys got married and it was on the TikTok. Uh, I saw it on TikTok recently. Like one of the NBC guys recently got married because they're all like, I thought as soon as they hit puberty, they sort of take them out behind the shul old yeller style. Oh God. I, I, there's some people listening to this who have no idea what we're talking about. Um, And to them, I say congratulations. We'll go back to talking about sports. I, yeah. I swear. But we, um, we we should we should say off the top, uh, or as close to off the top as we're as we're getting before all this digression, that we have a really great uh, interview coming up at the second half of the episode with Evan Goldstein, um, who is a master sommelier. And I know you're thinking, well, why is he on your podcast? He is not just a master sommelier; he's a master sommelier uh, for the San Francisco Giants, and. For- I think Which is, I think we it's were really cool. Yeah, but I think I think we all, were we were very generous in not asking him what's it like having the coolest job in the world because you know that, uh, that, that's, that's a hard true. question to answer. What does he do other than drink wine, watch baseball, and think about how how they're related? <laughs> I really liked his story. What was he talked about? You know, lots of baseball related wines, including. Dave Roberts and Rich Aurelia's, which I think is called Red Seam, which is a great name for, you know, earth, wine and baseball. Um, But I think, you know, why is that related to Jews in sports? Well, he's a Jew who's working in the front office. Red Red Stitch. He's a Jew working in the front office of a professional sports franchise. Also, I think competitive tasting uh, could be theoretically a sport. In our interview, Jamie mentions that classic episode of Frasier. Um, where Niles and Frazier are running for Corkmaster, um, as well as the movie Psalm, which sort of features a, co- a competitive element of which yeah. Evan is one of the main judges of the Master Sommelier program and one of the oldest ones in America. Um, yeah. It's actually so stick, around, stick around for that interview. I think I think it's going to be really interesting to people who are Giants fans and non-Giant fans just to hear more about the idea of of wine and baseball, wine and sports as a as a burgeoning topic. I think I think people are really going to enjoy that. Is is that as sophisticated as we've gotten as a podcast? Oh, good question. I mean, we've had some pretty great writers on here, um, you know, different sports writers, various stripes. We've gotten literary, but this is like the most, you know, of the the culinary arts sophistication, I guess, that yes, we've, we've gotten so far. I, you know, we were very sophisticated discussing the uh, invitation etiquette of Jeff Perlman's bar mitzvah. And I think this is <laughs> right. a different kind of sophistication that we're getting Definitely. here. Definitely. Uh, um, before we, before we get to that, anything going on in the world of Jews and sports, sports news that we want to discuss before we get to that? Yeah, I have a pitch for you. Sure. Um, I, I want to ask. I, I want to bring you a hypothetical, or if, see if you and any listeners will join me in this plan. I think it's time we start a movement. Recently, uh, Jewish baseball player and guy who's having a great year, Rowdy Telez, committed somewhat disappointingly to Mexico, which obviously good for him. I'm happy he's playing for the country of his parents' ethnicity. However, he is also Jewish and therefore eligible to play for Team Israel. Mm-hmm. He has chosen to play for for, um, for Mexico, which leaves a first baseman-sized hole at for Team Israel. I'm proposing that we start a movement to get Paul Goldschmidt on Team Israel, not as a Jew, but as an evangelical Baptist Christian who also oh, believes Israel to be a holy country. He can participate being having sure. Jewish ethnicity, yet he may not be part of the culture or part of the faith now. He still, I think, thinks Israel is like like the promised land where he will go. So can we convince him that it's an evangelical thing to bring him closer to Jesus to participate 
for Team Israel on the World Baseball Classic. If anyone wants to support it, please tweet at us with hashtag Goldschmidt for Israel. I think it's a good idea, but I, I, I feel like he's almost certainly going to be playing for USA. In oh, he can play for any Classic. country in the world, but but yeah. USA is one nation under God. Israel is one nation chosen by God. You see, I think that's a big difference. So I, I yeah I think I think he has committed to the to the, the USA's roster, um, but if he wants to renege on that and sort of follow his path as a uh, a different kind of chosen person, I guess in, in in his own mind, then sure, why not? I don't know that he'll be able to play in all the games, uh, depending on what the vaccination rules are where the games are played. I think I think the US's so, well, first games are in the states, but yeah. Um, there, there might be some games afterwards. So I, I have Israel's. no idea what the rules are. Israel's yeah. are also in the States. So, you know, while he may have committed, I truly think he should be playing for Israel. As, I just, as I, Jew, I don't as know. An yeah. I just don't know what the rules are going to be in Japan and Taiwan. So that'll be interesting to see. I mean, it, it's good to, good to keep that in mind. I mean, with Rowdy playing for Mexico, Goldschmidt, I mean, not really Jewish, but, you know, Jewish ethnicity. We should we should keep a track uh, as well on on some of the Jewish players who might be playing for some of the other teams. Maybe you know, for all we know, there's going to be some Australians or um, uh, I don't know, great British people or Czech people who have Jewish heritage uh, playing for those teams. Uh, you know, lesser so, lesser known baseball players who have eligibility for those countries as well. I think that's true. I, I couldn't find you know the the Great Britain baseball team and their catcher uh, Harry Ford. I know we've got some listeners in Great Britain too, so shout out to you guys following them and and Harrison Ford. If you know of any Jewish players on that team, we couldn't find any based on our research, but I'm sure there'll be more um, coming through. We know of at least two Jewish players or players with Jewish heritage now with Goldschmidt, maybe playing for Team USA. Unless this campaign can really get off the ground, uh, hashtag Goldschmidt for Israel, or or Goldie for Israel, whichever you prefer. Well, I'll let I'll let the the community decide on that one. Um, and Rowdy Tellez playing for Mexico. So if you know of any other Jews playing for any other teams other than Israel, please let us know. Yeah, oh, apparently might, J- might play for Israel as well. Might play for America as well. Yeah, He's probably got the spot if he wants it. At least from what I'm seeing, Jake Rabinowitz is listed on the Czech baseball team. He had previously, I think, played for the Israel baseball team. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume it's the same guy. I don't know if he ever made it. Uh, particularly fire, but Jake Rabinowitz is like, he was a, he was a Jewish, he was definitely like a Jewish guy. Um, obviously based on the name. I don't know if he ever played for Israel at the WBC, but he was definitely involved with the team at some position. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it's something to keep in mind in the future. Um, in other news, I mean, I think we, we talked in our last episode about how, uh, Max Homo was going to be pl- defending his crown in the Fortnite championship and he, he won. won, you know, that was our. That was our bait, our bait three six five, uh, you know, hot tip of the week that he was plus eight fifty or something like that. Buy eight three six five, draft Melechs and buy eight three six five, absolutely. Yeah, and he won, so good for him. I mean, great start to the PGA season. Um, you know, it's it's the weird fall season, so you know he, you might not see his name prop up again for a little while. He was at the Presidents Cup, obviously, with the American team that won. You know, I he's, think he he's went now ranked as well. Yeah, he's now ranked sixteenth in the world. Uh, which is as high as he's ever been. So Max Homa in the top 10 by the end of the 2022-23 season? Certainly on the table. Totally um, on the table. Know. He's now, you know, now the highest ranked Jewish golfer in the world of, of either gender. Um, and probably of all time, I, I think Paven may have gotten that high not, post-conversion. Not Paven, yeah. yeah. Uh, it depends where it was conversion related. Um, but he's up there and, and we're really happy for him. If he ever reaches 18, 
um, and land specifically on 18. It's like, you know, bump style points. I think, I, I think we'll, Berger, I think Daniel Berger was around there last year. Um, he, when he, he won, he Pebble, won Pebble Beach. Yeah, because no, I think he was, I think he was higher because he won Pebble Beach. Remember and that like, you know, it's sort of weird. It's worth different amounts of points. And like he, he had the few top tens around there. So I think he was higher than that around, around that time. Um, but he, he's dropped off a little bit. He's had a, had a rougher go in some of the, some of the later majors of the year. Yep. Um, anyways, he's currently ranked 33rd. Anyways, uh, not much else going on. I mean, obviously the baseball season's coming to an end football. We've previewed people. Um, I'm sure we'll do a little basketball preview in advance of that. Not a lot of mm-hmm. juice in the NBA and a hockey preview as well should be coming up soon. Uh, I, I, to my dismay, you know, as a non-hockey fan, it seems like every other sports channel I go to has preseason hockey on now. So, uh, great. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Without, without even focusing on the Jews, we should, but without even focusing on the, on the Jews. Yeah. That's us. That's our job. I, it's not Sportsnet's job to focus on the Jews with the I hockey. Can't, I can't TV. believe I can't believe hockey's back in like a week and a half. Um, just like it should be baseball playoff time, like football on weekends, and like we should all be focused on baseball playoffs. Does anyone really pay attention to the hockey season before uh, New Year's? I feel like the fall hockey season is I, that should I be like lower lower ranked. I like the way golf does it. You know, it should there should be a part of the season that you don't have to care about as much. <laughs> the 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 first games only the games count for the half games as many yeah points. like. Yeah, exactly. Like a win, a win is uh, a win is two points, and like you know, uh, no no overtime loss points at all. Absolutely, that, that's be sure. Yeah. Um, Anyways, I I, um, I love that idea, but maybe we should talk about wine. We should move. We should move into the imbibing corner of the show. Yeah, let's get to our interview with Evan Goldstein, master sommelier and master of all things wine for the San Francisco Giants. So uh, in the, I guess it's now the the three or four year history of our podcast, we've had countless Olympians, NHL players, uh, professional golfers, NBA players. Uh, uh, I guess the last one would be uh, Major League Baseball players. But for the first time, we actually have something rarer than that tonight on our <laughs> show, which is a master sommelier. Um, we're here with Evan Goldstein, who has recently been, I guess the term would be appointed. Um, the master sommelier of the San Francisco Giants baseball team, which I believe is a first in all of professional sports. Um, that is true. Yeah. So, okay, Evan, our first question. If you're the ma- the uh, master sommelier of the San Francisco Giants, what is it exactly that you do? Well, that's an excellent question and, and one that um, we're going to be delving into shortly. As you well mm-hmm. know, um, as baseball fans, we're officially out of it, which means that in about 12 days, we're all going to take a small hiatus, take a few weeks off, and then roll up our proverbial uh, jersey sleeves and get in there and start um, talking about it. So we have lots of ideas of things that we want to do, but but needless to say, we all need to sort of sit down and prioritize, put some timelines together. I think we have targeted goals of both, you know, sort of the basic stuff, which is, you know, wine selections inside the park at the various tiers and various experiences. But also, you know, we also have spring, spring training down in Scottsdale in mind to do some uh, stuff there as well, too. But you know, in essence, uh, this is going to be a, a journey for everybody, you know, in the sense that it's never happened before. So we're all going to be kind of learning along the way. So the obvious stuff, 
uh, would be, you know, do an, do an audit of what's in the ballpark currently, uh, speak with the fabulous concessionaires Bon Appetit about what's been working, what hasn't, what sells, what doesn't, what areas they feel like um, we could lean into more, uh, what areas um, from the standpoint of wine have we not spent any time in and other reasons why. So there's going to be a lot of fact finding. I'll probably spend a lot of time writing notes and listening uh, to what's doing. It is certainly not my goal uh, to go in and um, break things. Uh, things have been working awfully well here. And I think if anything, we just want to continue to enhance it. So that's probably the nuts and bolts of it. That being said, however, um, you know, we have we have several ideas of things that we want to do. We want to definitely uh, pick up on the event part of thing. And like I said, I have a personal goal, which I hope is consistent with the uh, giants of uh, setting some programs up during spring training in Scottsdale next year. Um, some that are uh, purely educational and learning. Um, there's an entire wine country in Arizona that people don't even know about, uh, dozens of whom uh, winery-wise are doing a really good job. Um, there are certainly lots of um, Giants fans and local community members who are big um, supporters of wine, and we want to be able to provide some learning opportunities for them. There are also um, a lot of players and Giants people who are into wine, and before things get too serious, um, I know they're very excited about wanting to um, imbibe, indulge, learn, etc. <laughs> so we're going to build some stuff around that. And then, you know, we're, we're obviously going to have um, events at the park during the course of the year. We'll do um, various tastings, uh, whether it's at the VIP level. I want to do some things for everybody. Uh, they've got various clubs and stuff out there. So we'll put some programs together for them. Uh, one of the things I'm actually really looking forward to is, um, I don't know if you all know, but, you know, 50 states in the United States of America produce wine. Mm -hmm. um, and while that is not to say they all make great wine, a number <laughs> of them make really good wine. And with the um, schedule completely um, going you know, ballistic next year. One of the mm -hmm. things that um, I'd like to do that continue doing what they've actually been doing is when visiting teams come into town, highlight some of the wines from there. So if you've got the Mariners coming into town, do some stuff from Washington. If you've got the Tigers coming into town, do some stuff from Michigan. If you've got the uh, Rangers or, you know, coming into town, do some things from Texas. So I think we're going to do, do some things there. Um, I also think, you know, we're in very preliminary discussions about wanting to um, uh, put together something more formalized, a Giants Wine Club, TBD, et cetera. But that provides other opportunities too to really integrate wine as part of a greater experience um, on the field, uh, off the field, and then in wine country as well. That's a great answer. Very detailed and very thorough. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I should just I, I should just add something. I, you know, all 50 states produce wine and also the one province in Canada, uh, Ontario, where we both are, uh, has a baseball team that should be coming your your way. Uh, I think in I, I think next year the Giants are in Toronto, but the year after we'll be in San Francisco. Well, we'll have to and bring in some elements from Niagara uh, down exactly. here and You'll Prince Edward Island and a few other places. It's, yeah, it's not uh, just just FYI, it's not very good, but you know, it, it'll, <laughs> there, you'll find something to serve that'll be uh, palatable. James, you, you'll you know you'll appreciate the fact that I was actually up in uh, Niagara on the Lake Canadian side earlier this year and was one of the two what they refer to as import judges brought in from oh, outside wow. of Canada to be a judge at the National Canadian Wine Award. So I tasted probably north of 500 Canadian wines over the span of several days, and I know without question we could find some really good wines to bring in and uh, feature Absolutely. and highlight another Absolutely. friend of mine who's an importer. 
So there you go. Absolutely. That's we should amazing. say Ni- Niagara on the Lake, uh, home of our uh, home of our podcast producer. Or he's sorry, he's yeah. in Niagara Falls, but but close enough. They call it Viagra on the lake, <laughs> given the, the demographic of the people that live there. Yeah. So, Evan, I think baseball, probably more than any sport, has a, uh, I don't know, sort of relationship with a, with an idea of drinking, casual drinking of like, you know, sort of like beer and a hot dog. Like that, that I think is a quintessential baseball thing. Not that, not that people aren't drinking beer at other sporting events, but, you know, there has always been this connection or at least in 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 certain certainly within the american memory of of beer and baseball the idea i think of of drinking wine at a baseball game that in itself is a relatively new thing certainly i don't think it was something i saw much as a kid uh or that was necessarily offered but is it something as a a giants fan as someone who's been going to the games for a long time is it something that you've seen increase uh over the years that there's been more demand for uh you know wine and not just wine but quality wine when people are watching a game Oh, exponentially. Actually, the Giants um, started back in the, gosh, in the late 70s, back at the old proverbial stick, uh, having wine offerings uh, there, you know, with an understanding, of course, that we were in wine country and wine was something that needed to be um, to be looked at. Uh, right. Then probably in, gosh, in I want to say the uh, the 90s. Um, myself, back when I was working um, as a Canadians, you'll appreciate this, for the Bronfman family with a company called Seagram uh, sure. that was a big producer mm-hmm. of, of wine and a number of other things. We worked with the Giants and sponsored them. And one of our uh, brands, Sterling Vineyards, in fact, for three years running, sponsored an event called Wine Tasting by the Bay, where we literally set up a trade tasting um, at Candlestick Park and had, you know, dozens of tables and people come and tasted that. And people started to get really excited about it. I know the Giants at that time. Um, besides the uh, the revenue, we're, we're in, interested in wine too. And that seemed to carry on um, to the ballpark. You know, when we moved to Oracle, what is now Oracle, what was then AT&T, that event actually carried over for a couple of years. And they used the opportunity of being in the new park and having reset and being in a sophisticated part of San Francisco where, you know, the, the, the average ring of what people eat and what people drink is higher. And the number of um, corporate sponsors who come in who are interested in wine, as, as well as beer and craft beer uh, as part of their experience grew. And then wine has just been, as you mentioned, whether it's through, you know, the God bless the NBA, they've really been driving uh, the wine thing uh, more so than any other sport. But I think baseball's picked up on it. And I think that we're no longer going to be looked at as simply to your point, a dog and a beer moving forward. That's, that's really good news. I've, I've you know, the last in Toronto, we've got our, concession stands that are fairly standard we have some local stuff there's i think something like 75 beers available now at the ballpark in toronto but if you go say to new york to city fields the one i'm thinking of they have a mamafuku they have a shake shack they have everything and they serve wine in what i think is a brilliant idea in a little plastic cup like it's it's a stemmed wine cup with a screw top Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it lets them portion it out pregame and give it, and you can pick between, you know, you've got your whole lineup. Sometimes if you're lucky with a charcuterie board, if they haven't sold out. Um, so I think it's part of, like you said, sort of the evolving of concessions as it goes on further. Yeah, no, and very much, I mean, the Giants have, I believe it's like seven or eight wine bars on various <laughs> levels of wow. the stadium and people can get wine um, literally in a bottle, which you order a bottle and they will dump it from the bottle into a um, very actually quite elegant plastic carafe and send you on mm-hmm. your way with four cups off to your seat. You can get wine on tap, which is a huge deal here in California and get some really premium wines available to you again in, in cups, just uh, tapped out. And um, in 
in the, the, the suites, particularly, they obviously have a lot going on as far as wine lists and things like that. And they've um, been seeing wine growing um, year in and year out. Uh, so I'm looking forward to rolling up the sleeves and taking a look at the numbers with them, setting some objectives on what we want to do. But, but I, I see this um, process and I do you know, uh, see it as a process, pardon the Philadelphia 76ers pun for a minute, to really move <laughs> wine forward and, uh, and and have this sort of set the new paradigm for what wine can be in professional sports. And we'll start off with baseball, obviously, but there's no reason why similar things couldn't take place with basketball or with hockey up in your part of the world or, or um, even the NFL. So which bottle, which bottle is your Joel Embiid? <laughs> which bottle is my Joel Embiid? Well, you need some, you need something that's staunch. You need something that can stand in the paint, doesn't take any prisoners, yet has a bit of elegance about it at the same time. So I'd probably stay away from a uh, big brooding Napa Valley Cabernet because they're a little bit meaner uh, than Joel could be. He's, actually he's got, he's got a, a nice light guy. side. He's got a nice he side. He does have a light side. So I would actually probably go into the hills of Sonoma County, maybe find something off of uh, some of the mountains up there in northern alexander valley still starch still big but with a softness to the tannins so evan let's let's just go back a little bit i just, just want to know a little bit more about uh how you came to be in the role that you're in how did how did you become a master sommelier what what's involved in that process and and how did you uh how, what interested you in that how did you approach that yeah, well, I, I was I was very fortunate in, in that I grew up in a household where wine was very much part of our table, like in many parts of the world. I'm thinking specifically of Europe, where, you know, if you're uh, able to reach the table and you're getting decent grades, your mom will drop a thimble full of red wine into your glass of water and life starts from there. Um, I would say we were sort of similar to that in my household, that we had wine at table. Um, and when I was a teenager, I was allowed to have a glass of wine, statute of limitations. As long as my grades were good, we had wine at the holidays, et cetera. Sure. Uh, so I'd always been interested in it. Um, I went into the hospitality industry when I realized I couldn't make it as a rock and roll drummer, which is what I really wanted to be when I was a kid. Um, and then um, it sort of fell in place. My mother's a chef, fairly well-known chef here in uh, Northern California in the United States, has penned 36 books, had a restaurant for 15 years. And I realized if I didn't want to be known as her kid for the rest of my life, I needed to pick a different avenue, a different uh, channel. And um, wine was something that was important. I was actually pretty good at it. And so when we opened up our restaurant, Square One Restaurant, on May 14th, 1984. Uh, I was at the helm of the wine program there um, and got into it and helped really, I believe, and I hope I don't sound too arrogant, trailblaze what was a very nascent wine scene at the time in San Francisco. And three years later, um, passed my master sommelier exam, which is an English-based um, essentially doctorate in wine for people who work in the restaurant business, master sommelier as opposed to master of wine, which is as much about writing and importation and wine law and all that. Also English-based, I might add. And I passed that in uh, 1987. Uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Now I'm uh, affectionately referred to as one of the village elders of that organization <laughs> and the trade itself. But, um, I, you know, I still consider myself to be uh, up at the front, cutting edge and, you know, putting this deal together with the Giants, I think, um, jaw dropped a few people and made them realize, my God, that guy's still got a few creative juices left in him. Well, it's very cool from an outsider perspective. Uh, you know, someone where I think we're both into wine and into sports, but the connection isn't one that naturally occurs to us as fans of both. But I think it's a great idea to make it so. Got a quick question for you about in your experience, you know, tell us we tend to focus on Jewish athletes throughout the whole world. How Jewish is the master sommelier scene? 
That's a great question. I've really never thought about it that much. I know there are a couple of us. Um, I, I will tell you that it's uh, generally, it's becoming increasingly diverse, but historically it was uh, unfortunately a bastion of, 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 of older white males. Um, we've got roughly, I want to say, 33, 34 of us that are female, or I should say of us, of, of our organization that are, 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 are uh, female. We've got a few uh, BIPOC master sommeliers, but it is, as you would probably experience in your lifetime, still a uh, sadly white dominated industry, although all of us are collectively working on that. In fact, one of the Giants um, wine sponsors, if you will, are the McBride Sisters, which is the largest uh, black wine brand in the United States. They sell uh, their delicious um uh, canned wines at the ballpark and uh, do a really good job. But we're going to definitely take advantage of the diversity that is Northern California, the diversity that is our wine country, the diversity that is our population uh, base, and ensure that we're covering all of it. Uh, I, I'm sure most listeners, if, if they have a, a direct uh, link with the sommelier program or the master sommelier program is, is probably from watching the movie Psalm, which I think has a really you know competitive element to it. These guys who are sort of training to take the exam and sort of pushing each other to do it. Is there a competitive element to wine tasting? I mean, I would say, and I, I think I can speak for Gabe here, that our understanding of it is entirely based on the Frasier episode when he's running for pork <laughs> master and he has a taste off with Niles where they're, you know, they're blind tasting different bottles and they have to guess what it is. And, you know, the thing, the last one they're stumped on, I think, or they split is like 55% um, Shiraz and 55% Grenache or something, something like that. So is there a, a competitive nature to it when, when you're among other, other Psalms? Yeah, I, I would say the answer is sort of yes and no. I mean, like anything else, you know, the real world has a tendency to over-exaggerate and caricature everything. And there's certainly sure. those of us, when we get together, we blind taste each other as probably as much for fun as for competition. Clearly, when you are in the examination mode of trying to become a master sommelier, there's a whole rigor and a process and um, matriculation and all of that. But when we're sort of getting together amongst friends and amongst colleagues, we'll do it for fun, but nobody but he'll uh, be penalized. You know, the reality of wine is that, you know, a lot of it depends on what side of the bed you got up on in the morning. Is your tasting skills good in the world of biodynamics? Is it a fruit day? Is it an earth day? How is your perception? Um, what kind of a mood you're in? A wine that you literally tasted brilliantly one day, the next day may not show exactly the same way. So I think we cut, we cut ourselves a little slack. I will tell you in the, the literally tens of thousands of bottles that you taste over time as a professional, you know, you start to create reference points and markers and threads that pull wines together. So presuming somebody throws a glass at you and says, what is it? If it's a really good example of what it is from a classic area, you've got a fairly reasonable shot of getting the wine, maybe not the producer, maybe not the vintage, maybe not the row of the vineyard or whatever, but you know, you'll be in the proverbial ballpark. One of, <laughs> one of my favorite things about the movie Psalm, and I think this is probably, you know, they, I don't think any of the characters were Jewish, but I find this to be a very Jewish thing is they have all of their training. They have rigorous notes, a lot of tasting. And by the end of the night, they're just drunk guys screaming at each other. <laughs> and that's, that's the way it is in each, each time they do it. And I imagine, you know, when, Friends and I, we we taste for fun also, too. We do blind tastings of whiskeys, of wines. By the end of the night, that devolves and we're just having fun. So that's something yeah. I found very nice about the film. 
Well, I, I think, and I think there's certainly a truth to the fact that even if you're doing it, you know, in a so-called professional manner and you are quote unquote spitting your wines rather yeah. than swallowing your wines, the reality is, is that the, the taste buds and the receptors in your mouth will absorb a certain amount of alcohol. So when you've gone through and you've tasted, even if you're spitting and maybe swallowing a sip here and there, eight or 10 wines, you're going to start having a good time. And then, <laughs> then things start to become fun and all of that too. The day that this becomes purely a competitive sport, like, you know, I don't know, um, baseball or something, then it really becomes challenging and we lose the whole purpose of it. I mean, wine is experiential. I think as you, you sort of rightly pointed out there, wine is about sharing. Wine is about learning. Wine is about discovery. I mean, the thing that I find the most fascinating out of it is the more that you know, the more you generally want to know. And the people of mine who are like in classic brands of wines, one of the things they complain about the most is how do you build loyalty in a category that's defined by promiscuity. You know, the more you know, the more mm-hmm. you want to go out and experiment. So it's really hard, but I think that's in fact what people love most about it is being turned on to something they haven't had before, discovering something organically when they drove up to, um, you know, Niagara on the lake and had a wine at a winery that they didn't know and realized, oh my God, you know, um, you know, hybrid grapes can taste really good if they're if they're done well or whatever. So, uh, but I I do think that there's playfulness. There can be friendly competition, but in the end, we're all about the enjoyment. So, Evan, um, if you're okay with this, we'd like to throw a few things at you. Obviously, a, a fair amount of your job is not just about wines, obviously, but wine pairing, because you know what is what is wine without food, and vice versa. Um, so, we want to ask you about a few, you know, ballpark favorites, and just sort of sure. broadly speaking, what you might recommend. So, starting off with uh, what is at least now seems to be Oracle Park's uh, claim to fame, food wise, which I thought was sort of a little bit mediocre, but I, I'm going to say the garlic fries are, are a thing that's very well known and they were, they're fine. But is there a wine that you would pair with the garlic fries? Well, well, well a, a part of it would depend on like, you know, the, the challenge with garlic fries is like how, how much are they turning? If they're soggy and they're funky, they, they suck. But if you okay. get them when they're crispy and they're good and the garlic's cooked enough and all that, they're, they're wonderful. What I would tell you about garlic fries in general, as, and as garlic is a fairly earthy and pungent flavor, you're going to need something that kind of cuts through, um, and, and, and refreshes the palate. So much as I would love to enjoy a lot of red wines with it, I tend to be a white wine guy when it comes to garlic fries, or if I'm feeling kind of um, maybe that direction, maybe even a dry rosé would be good. But I would look for something that had an earthier component, therefore something probably older world, maybe European, maybe French, maybe Italian, maybe Spanish, mm, okay. maybe Portuguese, um, with bright acid, uh, not a lot of oak because you get enough fry out of the fryer later, and um, refreshing character <laughs> to it to cut through that pungent, pungent garlic. Okay. And uh, I don't think, I don't think the giants have any kosher offerings yet. I mean, maybe, maybe they'll uh, revamp that in the future, but uh, if someone was to sit down with a Hebrew national uh, hot dog, you know, that classic, you know, I, I think people probably, people consider yeah. a beef hot dog and, and a beer a pretty good combination, but is there a, is there a wine that pairs well with a nice, a nice kosher, kosher, kosher frame? Yeah. Here's the challenge with the, with, with the hot dog question is it's, is um, first of all, to your point, and you've correctly ascertained what kind of a dog is it? Because if it's a bratwurst or a Sheboygan or if it's a, a Louisiana hot or whatever, not only are you changing the medium in terms of what it's made out of, beef, pork, whatever, but you're also changing the flavor profile. But the thing that I think most people don't consider with the hot dog is unless you're at a um, Aussie rules football game in Melbourne where literally you get a hot dog on a bun and nothing, literally 
Nothing. Um, you, you know, are you a mustard guy? Are you a ketchup guy? Are you a hot sauce person? Do you put sauerkraut on it, etc.? So that element is actually, believe it or not, going to drive the match mm. more than the hot dog itself. The hot dogs at that point simply becomes a vehicle to drive everything else to your mouth. So I'm going to give you what I do, uh, which is I get my beef hot dog. I'll put some brown whole grain mustard on it, both for texture and flavor, some chopped onions, and just a kiss, not too much, sauerkraut on it. So that'll pop some of the acid on it. You'll get a rusticity from the onions and the... And the um, uh, uh, Mustard, onions, and the mustard. Right, thank you. And then, um, and then you've got the beef hot dog, sort of pulling the whole thing together. Presuming it's not over sodium filled, which unfortunately they are sometimes. I would go with sort of a nice, crisp, bright uh, red wine. I would probably do the classic, good old California American thing and have sort of a younger but not overly alcoholic Zinfandel, one that sort of pushes the red fruit, bright acid. Uh, will pick up nicely on all the elements there. Work with the mustard the raw onions, um, have enough body to handle that entire dish, but also be refreshing enough to carry everything through. This makes me want a glass of wine, not (laughs) a hot dog. I I think everyone probably, Evan, after they speak with you, probably thinks they want a glass of wine. I think that's, 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 you know, they usually do the one thing. The one thing to go back to the hot dog thing, the killer, the, 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 the one thing you don't want to do if you really want to enjoy wine with your hot dog is put way too much of that sweet pickle relish on it. Because if the, if you add too much sweetness into your hot dog and your wine is dry, the wine's going to taste really sour. So you actually have to go with a slightly sweet wine, like, uh, you know, Chenin Blanc or Riesling or something, if you're going to go that route. Um, but I would highly not recommend it. I would stick more on the savory side of uh, hot dog life. And so then some of the other baseball uh, or ballpark favorites, I think, are probably things that, you know, once upon a time they used to give out at bars for free because they made you want to drink more beer. So something like peanuts uh, or popcorn, pretzels. Uh, pretzels. Yeah. Is there something very, that goes with very sort of, salt and, and carbs? Yeah. yeah. Is there something that goes with a salty, carby snack? Uh, yeah. In the wine? Something that you can drink a, a fair amount of, I guess, too. Most, most definitely. I mean, I think the most important thing there is if you think about what do we usually enjoy with that, we enjoy beer. And, you know, what? while beer has... Um, hops and, and bitterness, wine has acid instead. So things that tend to be lighter and effervescent um, actually work well. So you don't need to go out and buy quote unquote champagne, but if you were to get like a Spanish cava, if you were to get in an expensive American sparkling wine, if you were to get a French uh, Cremant from a place other than champagne or even a, a dry Prosecco, those actually have the, the stunt doubling thing. So you get the bubbles effervescently sort of cleaning your palate up and lifting. You have the acid of the wine cutting through the salt and it works out absolutely beautifully. You can actually use, um, again, bright white wines work well for cutting salt and cutting richness again. So whether it was a a Spanish Albarino, you could even do a dry sherry, you could do a Sauvignon Blanc, you could do a Pinot Grigio, all of those work well. And then finally, for people that are, you know, they just don't drink white wine because that's not what they do. Um, You can pick up lighter style red wines that are not super alcoholic, Italian Barbera, um, a, a, a Pinot Noir that's not overly oaky, that'll probably do the trick. And even things that have a natural salinity to them, like Spanish sherry, uh, dry sherry is brilliant. Um, Albarino from the coast of Spain, brilliant. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc from outside of northern Chile in the desert, not too far away from the ocean, believe it or not. Brilliant. Wines that have a natural salinity to them work well with foods that are slightly salty also. I, I got to say, I, I completely agree. Obviously, you know much more about this than I do, but um, as a sherry drinker, like a bowl of roasted peanuts and, and a dry sherry is like my favorite snack. Having said that, 
I have never seen Sherry offered at a professional sports stadium. I think it might be a long time until I ever do. If I ever not do that, yet. if I ever see, not yet, if I ever see, not, uh, not if now I, that yeah. Evan's around. Not now, but you know, we also the other thing that we're going to be doing at the at the park, which is you know, we host um, uh, soccer games and things like that too. And occasionally we add Real Madrid, I believe, come through okay. last year or FC Barcelona, one of them. We're going to be taking a look at everything. And if there's an opportunity to blow out an interesting match with something that people don't know, but somebody who is of that heritage might appreciate it. We don't never say never. We may bring some things out there. And again, the whole idea is to is to educate, entertain, edutain, if you will, people uh, through their palate uh, at, at every at every meaningful uh, stop. That's fantastic. Um, Gabe, anything you want to ask before we, we uh, end our chat with Evan? Um, I've been saving this question for the end, but are you working with the team to prepare the uh, wine, sort of the wine-based recruitment box for Aaron Judge? <laughs> well, Aaron Aaron actually comes from not too far away from wine countries. He's in the northern Central Valley. He's not too far away from Lodi and the uh, Clarksburg area. And to the extent that he has an interest in wine, um, we can play to both his his, his home uh, areas and play to some of the better offerings there. But we can certainly play to the general Bay Area, uh, extraordinary expertise. And if they uh, want me on the bandwagon to wine him and dine him, I would certainly be there. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. And I, I, I think as, as Blue Jay fans, we wish you tremendous luck in uh, luring Aaron Judge away from the AL East uh, toward the safer confines of the NL. Obviously, you know, I agree with you 100%. He should be moving to wine country and, and making wine full time. He's going home. He's back home, home to wine country. He's going home. He's from the area. He loves there. You know, one of my winemaking friends, a gentleman by the name of Rich Aurelia, who you probably know, number 35, is why he wears number 35 and was his, he mimicked his stance. And I was actually talking to Richie uh, not too recently and we were talking about, eh, maybe there's something we can do there. So uh, our, our mouth to God's ear, as they say. That's that's actually a really good question is, is there any of, of every baseball player who's ever played that you've ever worked with or ever met, who knows the most about wine? You know, that's a, that's a really, you know, the first person who really got into wine from the baseball end of things was um, my favorite non-giant growing up. And that was uh, Tom Terrific, Tom Seaver, hmm. who, when he retired from baseball, bought a vineyard up on Diamond Mountain in the northern end of Napa Valley, not far from Calistoga, and very quietly set about making some of the most exceptional uh, Cabernets in the northern end of the valley and really sort of set the bar, if you will, um, in professional sports there. Uh, since then, not many baseball players have done a lot, probably the most celebrated um, uh, pairing, if you will, which is sort of funny for us on the West Coast, is Rich Aurelia, uh, who does have an operating winery um, in Northern California. Um, and he is partner in it. I don't know if you know, is a gentleman who goes, for, a guy named Dave Roberts. God, oh, yeah. Dodger. Yeah. So they're actually yeah. partners in this brand called Red Stitch, which oh, cool. makes Cabernet and Pinot Noirs from the Santa Lucia Highlands. And they do a really good job. And um, I remember Richie literally sitting in the front row of a wine taste. I did down in Scottsdale a hundred years ago and asking lots of really good questions. Um, so he'd be in it. And a lot of people don't know, but, um, you know, before uh, a long time ago, back in the day, not super far removed from his Cal Poly days, Mike Kruko used to make wine, you know, more of a okay. home winemaker guy, <laughs> but he made some delicious wines. I actually had a couple of bottles of his fabled doozy ranch Zinfandel from outside of Paso Robles. And he did a good, did a good job, but there are a lot of players who are interested in it. You know, the giants have actually sort of given me a heads up that there are some players current and past 
who would like to talk about doing something. So, um, you know, if Dwayne Wade and, uh, and Carmelo Anthony and Steph Curry mm-hmm. and Clay Thompson can all do wine, why can't right. the Giants? That's it's, great. So I, I think that's, that's fantastic. I, I certainly look forward to, to drinking more, uh, more, more baseball player made wine. You know, they know one type oh. of barrel, so why can't they, like, they learn about another one? There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Evan. You've been a yeah, fantastic guest. That's great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. Big thanks and shunatova to Evan Goldstein. Um, we should have probably asked him which wine goes best with apple and honey or made some sort of oh, kosher wine joke or, or talked about apple. I did want to make a kosher, a, a kosher wine joke. Yeah. I did want to make a kosher wine joke, but I think probably given that the giants doesn't have a, uh, like a dedicated kosher food stand, which I was a bit surprised about, um, when doing yeah. the research, we, I'm not surprised we have a, a couple wine. of years ago. Yeah. If you go back into the mench warmers archives, dear listeners, we ranked the kosher food options all over America and there's way fewer than you'd think. Yeah. Um, there, there's like, you know, most of the cities that have a uh, large Jewish community have kosher food stands of some sort. Certainly all the Toronto sports teams do, um, or at least the major ones do. Um, but, uh, not all of them. So, you know, someday, I guess maybe they do have kosher options. Like I think there was the Hebrew national or something like that, or at least kosher enough style, um, that, uh, and we talked about hot dogs, hot dogs in the interview, but another huge thank you, um, to to Evan for participating and then chatting about wine in the San Francisco Giants. Um, that should wrap up our episode. Other than, you know, we you just gave me a terrible idea. So what if instead of talking about the jokes we missed in the interview, a B-Sides episode talking about the jokes we missed on every episode of the podcast <laughs> from the beginning until now. That would, I'm sure that could clear a iTunes queue like nothing else. Sure, sure. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by the Canadian Jewish News. Um, you can find all of our episodes and uh, articles and things like that on the Canadian Jewish News website, the cjn.ca. Um, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to us on the website, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., etc., um, you know, please please tell your nephews and uh, nieces about our podcast. Um, and as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Menchwarmers. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.